Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that's bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I'm Sean, the host for this episode. This time on Strange Matters, I will be discussing the strange events surrounding the death of a man named Hugues de la Plaza, who would die under mysterious and controversial circumstances. Hugues would be found alone in his locked apartment, having died from several fatal knife wounds. Despite there being a number of unusual facts surrounding his death, such as no knife ever being found in his apartment, the police would rule his death a likely suicide. The investigation and resulting backlash of Oog's death would spark controversy and debate over how the police conducted themselves, and over what exactly happened the night that Oog de la Plaza died. In this episode, I will be going over the details of the night of his death, the police and medical investigation that followed, and the different sides of the story that have been put forth to attempt to solve this strange case. The death of Oog de la Plaza has been considered a case of what is known as a locked room mystery. The locked room mystery is a setup that is found commonly in crime or detective novels or short stories, in which a person is found dead or murdered in the titular locked room, a scenario in which there is no clear explanation as to how anyone got in or out. These crimes and potential murders are often referred to having happened under impossible circumstances, and because of the total lack of clues or explanation, are sometimes brought up as examples of a perfect murder. The story of Oog's death does seem to fit into this category, as it involves a man potentially being stabbed to death, all the while being locked in his apartment with no sign that anyone else was ever there. Over the course of this episode, I will be going over the aspects of this case that fall into the so-called lockroom mystery criteria, and present the available clues and evidence to try and determine whether there is a possible answer to solve this confusing death. Before we begin the episode, a reminder that Strange Matters podcast is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation, and in exchange can gain access to exclusive bonus episodes. The latest exclusive episode is another case of a locked room mystery involving the death of a man named Isidore Fink, who was found shot to death in his apartment, which was completely sealed off, including bolt-locked doors and nailed-shut windows. To hear this exclusive episode and many others like it, please consider supporting the show at our page at patreon.com strangematters. For this episode, I'd like to thank our newest patrons, Adam and Avon. And now to discuss the death of Oog de la Plaza. In 2007, Oog was a 36-year-old man working as a sound engineer in San Francisco, California. He had dual citizenship with both the United States and France. In the early morning hours of June 2nd of 2007, Oog was wrapping up a late night of drinking out with some friends. Shortly before 2 a.m., Oog left a nightclub called the Underground SF and started walking back towards his apartment in the Hayes Valley. No one saw or heard from him after he left the nightclub. Some hours later, at around 8 a.m., one of Oog's neighbors was leaving their apartment to grab their newspaper when they saw something alarming. They noticed a trail of blood drops outside of his front door. This neighbor called 911 and told them about the situation. Shortly after the police arrived on scene, they also noticed the blood outside of Oog's front door, as well as some blood smeared on the doorknob. After there was no response to their knocking, the police kicked open the door and entered the apartment. They walked into a bloodbath. The police found Oog's body slumped against a wall and quickly determined he was dead. The front of his body was covered in blood from three apparent stab wounds, and blood was visible on the walls and on the floor in the vicinity of the body. 
The police could see that he had been stabbed in three places, the stomach, the chest, and on the left side of his neck. A team of San Francisco Fire Department paramedics arrived to take the body away. One of them, Shannon Stable, remembered that day clearly. Shannon later described the morning by saying, As soon as I hit the door, the smell was very distinctive, because blood smells like iron. It hit me like a wall. And there was so much of it. It was just unbelievable, the amount of blood. I'd never seen anything like that. I couldn't imagine what his last moments were like. That was the most unusual crime scene I'd ever seen, and I did deem it as a crime scene. As the corpse was being sent to be examined, the police investigated the scene of his death. Along with blood on the walls and floors of the apartment, there was also some on Oog's laptop. A wine glass had fallen and shattered near where the police found his body. His TV had also been overturned and fallen to the floor. A bloody set of footprints, along with a sizable trail of blood, could be seen and followed through several rooms in the apartment. The police searched through the apartment, and while there were several kitchen knives visible, they could not find a bloody knife on scene that looked like it had been the one used on Oog. To an outsider, the details so far related to Oog de la Plaza's death would instantly seem to be that of murder. However, the police and medical examiner would eventually come to a very different conclusion. Dr. Venus Azar was the assistant medical examiner at the time, and arrived at the De La Plaza apartment to start her investigation. Just as with paramedic Shannon Stable, her first reaction to the scene was that a crime had taken place. One of the first comments Dr. Azar would make is, this is a homicide. Though, just a short time later, she would already begin to doubt that claim. As Dr. Azar looked over the area where the body was found and walked through the apartment, she described the scene as unusual, and one that contained a lot of contradictions. One odd thing that stood out was the doors, as both the front and back door were locked, both of which had deadbolts. There were no signs that there was any forced entry into his apartment, and there wasn't anything to clearly suggest that someone else had been in there. As for whether there was a violent struggle, Dr. Azar could also not make up her mind. The fact that the TV had apparently been knocked to the floor, along with a broken wine glass, could suggest that there had been a struggle. Oog's watch was also found on the ground underneath his body, possibly ripped off. While these aspects of the scene would suggest a struggle of some kind, Dr. Azar also said that the blood evidence pointed away from it. According to Dr. Azar, the trails of blood through the apartment did not appear to be one belonging to someone in a struggle or in a frantic hurry. About this part of the scene, medical examiner Azar said, I remember me and the crime scene people walking through and saying, well, that's weird. He didn't really move very fast. You know, literally looking at the blood drops. There wasn't any evidence of any high-velocity blood stains. It didn't look like he was in a fight or in a hurry to do anything. The blood stains were circular on the ground. They were greatly rounded. If he was running, the blood would have more of an elliptical shape with them, some tails to them. They would have a very different appearance. The fact that he walked around slowly bleeding... That was the part of the scene that didn't make any sense. Along with the blood evidence, another big factor that played into the investigation of the apartment was Oog's cell phone. The phone was clearly on a coffee table in the middle of the living room. The trail of bloody footprints and droplets showed that Oog walked by it, and the fact that there was no bloody handprints by or on the table showed that he never bothered to pick up his cell phone. After the call log was checked, they found that he had made no calls in the morning of his death to 911, when he was apparently walking around bleeding in his apartment. Another person working on the grisly scene was Inspector Antonio Casillas, a longtime veteran of the San Francisco Police Department. 
Casillas got to the apartment around two hours after the discovery of Oog's dead body, and remembers his own initial encounter that morning. Casillas said, I walked up to the patrol officers and identified myself. I asked them what did they think happened, and they said, well, we think somebody killed the guy. I can see the blood on the sidewalk, on the stairs, on the stoop, on the railing. And I say to them, any evidence of a blood trail leading away? And they said to me, no. Inspector Casillas would say that it's fairly common with violent stabbings for the assailant to either injure themselves or to become covered in blood, which typically can be seen with a trail of blood leading away from the crime scene. The fact that there was no trail of blood leading away from the front door of Oog's apartment to the sidewalk or street beyond is slightly unusual. The apartment security cameras also did not show anyone leaving or running away from the apartment complex in the time when Oog's was believed to have been dying. Inspector Casillas would interview Oog's neighbors and found out that they did hear something around the time of his death. The neighbor couple told the inspector that they had woken up at around 2.30 a.m., hearing something through their bedroom window. They described hearing what sounded like someone opening a door loudly, and then a short while later, hearing the door open and close again. At this point, they heard the sound of someone running down the stairs, and then later on hearing a big thud in Oog's apartment, like someone had sat down and fallen over loudly. Dr. Venus Azar would perform the autopsy on Oog de la Plaza three days later. He had suffered a puncture to his abdomen and chest, along with a deep vertical wound on the left side of his neck. Though the deepness and severity of the knife wounds were very similar to those seen in knife-related crimes, Dr. Azar said in her expert opinion they could also be self-inflicted. In describing the wounds, she said, Oog is right-handed. The wound to the neck goes from right to left and downward. The wound in his chest goes from right to left and downward. The wound in his abdomen goes straight in. The autopsy would reveal to Dr. Azar that there was no definitive clues as to whether the wounds on Oog's body had come from an attacker or were self-inflicted. Forensic testing was performed on the blood, hair, shoe prints, and fingerprints found at the apartment, and concluded that all of it belonged to Oog. There was no physical evidence that anyone else had been involved with the death, or even in the apartment. Also, none of Oog's valuables seemed to have been taken, and he still had his wallet and money on him when his body was found. After taking into account the wounds to the body of Oog de la Plaza and the evidence available at the apartment, the police and medical examiner would settle on a decision that would ultimately receive a lot of criticism and backlash from the family, friends, and community of Oog de la Plaza. It was ruled that the cause of death was undetermined, and the possibility that Oog's death was caused by suicide. This decision would cause an instant rift in between the family and friends of Oog de la Plaza and those in charge of the case. One of those hit hard by the news of his death was former girlfriend Melissa Nix, who kept in frequent contact with Oog. After she received news of his death some hours after his body's discovery, she got onto a plane and flew to San Francisco immediately and went to the police department. Once there, though, she was frustrated with her treatment, as the inspector in charge of the case would not talk to her, and did not wish to ask her any questions at the time. Melissa would say that she had the feeling that the San Francisco Police Department was not investigating the death of her friend seriously, and so she called up some of the local media. However, she was also turned away by a local crime reporter, who said that they don't deal with suicides. While angry and frustrated at the seemingly lack of attention the death of Oog was receiving, 
Melissa Nix was shocked when she found out that his parents had never been notified of the police that their son was dead. It fell to Melissa to call his parents in France and inform them that Oog had died two days before, and that the police were calling it a suicide. Just as with Melissa, Oog's father Francois was furious about the whole situation, and that the homicide detectives never bothered to call or question them at all before passing over his case as a likely suicide. Assistant medical examiner Dr. Venus Azar stuck by the decision to call Oog's death undetermined, with the possibility of death by self-inflicted stabbing. Dr. Azar said about the possibility of murder, Who would want to kill this guy? What's the motive? It wasn't robbery. His wallet and keys were there. Things that you wouldn't expect to happen can and do happen. People can spontaneously decide to kill themselves. Oog's friends and family refused to believe that he had committed suicide. His father Francois said the notion of such a thing was inconceivable and unthinkable. One of Oog's friends, who was with him at the nightclub the night of his death, said that he seemed happy and had plans to hang out later the next day. Melissa Nick said Oog was saving up money and had plans to take some trips soon. None of them could believe that he had spontaneously decided to kill himself that night, especially by stabbing himself in his apartment. Though the police remained steadfast in their initial decision of saying it was likely Oog de la Plaza committed suicide, there were several holes that were pointed out in the case that seemed to contradict that decision. One was the lack of an apparent weapon used. As I mentioned earlier, no bloody knife was found in Oog's apartment. In fact, the only knives they found were three kitchen knives. However, the police claimed that one of the kitchen knives found was in the sink at the time when they conducted their investigation, and it was possible that it had been washed clean. Therefore, the police version of events that night goes as follows. Oog returned to his apartment in the early AM hours after parting with his friends. At some point, he decided to kill himself, and so he stabbed himself three times, then took the time to wash the knife clean of any blood in the sink. Oog then briefly stepped outside of his apartment front door, and then as he walked back, he began to leak blood, which was the trail spotted by his neighbor some hours later. Oog opened the door with a bloody hand, leaving behind the blood smear that the police found on arrival. He then locked the front door with a deadbolt, and then walked and paced around the house slowly as he trailed and leaked blood everywhere. During his last walk through the apartment, he would knock over his TV and the wine glass onto the floor. Eventually, he began falling and collapsing against the walls, leaving behind the blood splatters and handprints, before finally falling over and bleeding to death. Also, at some point before he died, he took off his wristwatch, or it just fell off his arm, and landed on the spot beneath his body. Needless to say, not everyone was willing to agree with this theory on how Oog died. Despite the fact that those close to him could not believe he would commit suicide, just the manner in how the police described his last night did not sit well with anyone who knew Oog. It was hard for them to take this claim seriously that the reason why no bloody knife was found on scene was because Oog wanted to wash it after using it to mortally stab himself three times. Melissa Nix instead claims that the reason why there was no weapon found in the apartment was because Oog did not commit suicide, but was instead murdered, and that the assailant simply took the weapon with them. However, Dr. Venus Azar also agreed with the police that the knives found in the kitchen could possibly have been the ones used to cause the wounds to Oog, whether by attack or self-inflicted. After an examination of two of the kitchen knives collected at the apartment, Dr. Azar said, Those two knives could have inflicted those injuries. They're not inconsistent with having been the knives used. 
While both Inspector Casillas and Dr. Azar were criticized with their statements of suggesting Ooh killed himself, it would eventually be revealed that the suicide theory was not the main belief at first. In a twist to the story, Inspector Casillas would later say that the idea that Oog killed himself would not become the prevailing notion until he spoke to someone close to Oog, someone who had strongly denied that he killed himself. That person was none other than his former girlfriend, Melissa Nix. Though initially rebuffed by the inspector on the day after Oog's death, when she flew in by plane, Melissa Nix and Inspector Casillas would have a conversation four days after the discovery of the body. During this investigation, Melissa told the inspector that Oog had recently become extremely interested in Japanese culture. At one point, Melissa would say, Can I ask you one thing? Was this a harikiri? Did he go into his stomach? This question could suggest that Melissa herself had the idea that Oog had committed the Japanese ceremonial suicide seppuku, which involves the individual to plunge a short blade into their belly and slicing from left to right, causing a massive blood loss and a rapid death if done correctly. Dr. Venus Azar has pointed out that this conversation as the basis for the police's belief that Oog seriously could have killed himself. Dr. Azar said about this, The person that allegedly knew him the most said literally, they would not be surprised if the investigation concluded that he had done this to himself. She literally says that. For her part, Melissa Nix would say that she had not come up with her statements about Oog's fascination with Japanese suicide randomly, and that had been brought out by leading questions by Inspector Casillas. The inspector would then respond by saying that he didn't feel he had tricked her in any way with misleading questions, and that if he wanted to get her opinion on the matter, he would have just directly asked her whether she thought Oog killed himself. Locasillus later didn't recall whether he actually did ask that during the meeting. Melissa Nix would say that she feels that Inspector Casillus and Dr. Azar tried to retroactively label her as the one who first started the suicide theory, because they didn't want to take responsibility for their lacking investigation. Also, there was another conversation which would suggest that the police already were contemplating the suicide theory just hours after the body of Oog was found. Earlier I mentioned that Inspector Casillas interviewed a couple that lived next to Oog, and that they were awoken to several loud sounds around the time of his death. The neighbors would later say that the inspector had asked them multiple questions about the possibility that Oog killed himself shortly after he had arrived on scene. Both of them immediately said that they didn't think Oog would kill himself. The inspector then asked them other questions about whether Oog was a drug user, if he had been seen with prostitutes often, or if he seemed to suffer from depression. So while Inspector Casillas can claim that he didn't consider the suicide theory as viable before his conversation with Melissa Nix four days later, it would certainly seem, at the least, that it hit across his mind as a strong possibility within an hour of arriving at Oog's apartment on the morning of his death. Another early theory proposed by Inspector Casillas and the police was that Oog was on drugs or high at the time of his death, and this could have led to his suicide. Melissa Nix would say that Casillas told them that it was probable that Oog took some psychotic drugs either at the nightclub or on his walk home, and that while he was high off his mind, he randomly grabbed the steak knife in the kitchen and stabbed himself three times. His drug-filled state of mind also caused him to stumble around his apartment as he bled out, knocking over his TV and not bothering to use his cell phone to call for help. However, once the toxicology report came back, this proposed theory fell apart, as no recreational drugs of any kind was found in his system. 
Hugues de la Plaza's friends and family quickly lost faith that the San Francisco Police Department was seriously conducting this investigation, and were frustrated that they continued to push the suicide belief without any strong evidence. During this time, a high-ranking police officer, who asked not to be identified, told a reporter that the department is still confident that, ultimately, the investigation will show that Oog committed suicide. The officer told the reporter, As goofy as the case is, we're certain the suicide theory will pan out. Francois de la Plaza would hire a private investigator, John Murphy, to look into the death of his son. P.I. Murphy would himself come to the conclusion that Oog was absolutely murdered. Murphy said after being hired, I immediately went to the scene. I started interviewing neighbors, just knocking on doors. And then I come to find out after a day that there were three stab wounds in Oog de la Plaza, but there was no murder weapon. That's not a suicide. P.I. Murphy would spend time over the next few weeks interviewing everyone who knew or was involved with Oog de la Plaza. He found out from the coroner's report that Oog had eaten a small snack after returning home, and had gotten on his laptop to check several dating websites. Considering he had been out just hours earlier celebrating with his friends over a recent promotion, and upon returning home seemed to be living as normally, he didn't think that Oog would spontaneously decide to kill himself. Murphy and Oog's father Francois came up with their own theory as to what happened afterwards. They think at some point shortly after returning to his apartment after his night out, that Oog stepped outside his front door. He was then surprised by some attacker, who first stabbed him in the abdomen. Then as he was bent over, he was stabbed twice more, causing the downward angle strikes to his chest and neck. Oog then managed to break away and ran back to his apartment, locking the front door behind him. This could explain the small trail of blood leading to the front door, along with the bloody handprint on the knob. So, the family of Oog had a differing theory from the police, insisting that he was attacked and stabbed by someone with a knife. That would explain the how of his death, but still not the who or why questions. However, some of Oog's friends were able to fill in some of the possible explanations. According to his best friends, Oog was quite the ladies' man, and would try to get with as many girls as possible. One of his best friends, Christoph Schumann, said Oog was dating a new woman almost every night. He also said Oog didn't care if the girl was someone else's girlfriend or wife, he would still try and get with them. Christoph even admitted that if he had a girlfriend, Oog would probably make attempts at her also. So to fill in more of the blanks to this altering theory, it has been proposed that perhaps Oog either tried or succeeded in sleeping with a woman who was in a relationship someone with a furious and jealous lover. This person could have then possibly followed Oog after his night out, or waited for him outside of his apartment to ambush him at the right moment. So in this theory, Oog either stepped outside of his apartment for some fresh air, or maybe he was alerted to someone knocking. He was then stabbed in the walkway outside of his apartment, and then he ran back inside where he would eventually die minutes later. Private investigator Murphy also said that after all his research and questioning into Oog's life, he did not find anything that would suggest that he was suicidal. Murphy would say about this, Oog had money in the bank, he had friends, he had plenty of girlfriends, he was living the life, there was no suicide note, and no reason for him to kill himself. As time passed and the San Francisco police still had not turned up any possible leads for a murder suspect, if they were actually attempting to do so at all, that is. Francois de la Plaza 
would frustratingly give up any hope that they could solve this mystery. Francois instead turned to his home country for help, and alerted the French authorities and gave them all the information he had on the case. It is extremely rare for one country to step in and attempt to actively investigate a potential crime that happened in another country. But in an unusual circumstance, the French police agreed to look into the case of dual citizen Hugues de la Plaza. The French started to conduct their own investigation from the start. They went over the scene, the evidence, and interrogated every witness involved with Hugues. Hugues' good friend Christophe Schumann would later say that he was questioned by the French police as a potential suspect, but that it actually made him happy because it finally seemed that someone was doing real police work on the case. The French also conducted their own forensic testing and all the pieces of evidence found at his apartment, and they made a discovery that the San Francisco labs missed. While the SFPD claimed that there was no DNA or forensic evidence to suggest anyone else had been in the apartment at the time of Uke's death, the French police would believe otherwise. Due to this new testing, it was determined that there was unknown DNA found on Uke's washband that had been found on the floor under his body. Francois de la Plaza would say that it could be that his son's watch was ripped off during a struggle and that the attacker left some DNA behind on the watch. The French investigation would continue for nine months, concluding in a 2,000-page report in which they make their own findings very clear. According to the exhaustive work by the French detectives and investigators, they concluded that Hugues' death was 100% the cause of a homicide, not a suicide. Another finding that seemed to point away from the suicide theory could be found in a review of the death scene and autopsy by a separate forensic pathologist in 2009. In the newest report, Dr. Michael Ferenc pointed out several inconsistencies and things that were missed in the initial reports. One interesting aspect of the new report involved the bloody footprints found in Oog's apartment, and how their pattern did not line up with the possibility that Oog stabbed himself in the kitchen. The report has this to say about the footprints. The bloodshed evidence begins on the front doorsteps and sidewalk. Only one trail of dripped blood, the pattern indicates rapid, fairly active flow, is seen from the stairs to the front door. Throughout the interior scene, shoe prints consistent with the decedent's shoes are seen, but none are seen outside, consistent with the decedent's shoes not yet having walked through his own blood. If the gentleman had inflicted his own wounds in the kitchen area at the other end of the apartment and had walked bleeding to the front door, then one would expect bloody shoe prints and two trails of blood on the outside stairs and landing. Instead, blood shoe prints and two trails of blood are seen in the kitchen and hallway, indicating a single round trip into and out of the kitchen after his soles are bloodstained. After his report and review of all the evidence, pathologist Dr. Frank stated that, in his opinion, the death of Hugues de la Plaza was a homicide. When Dr. Venus Azar was questioned about the conflicting outcomes of her own report and that of the French and the review of her fellow pathologists, she would say, It's just an opinion. The cause of death and the manner of death are opinions. They're my opinions. You can have a different one. When asked what it would take for her to change her official stance on whether the death was a homicide over her undetermined ruling, Dr. Azar said, Someone that steps forward and says, I know what happened. Someone who tells me that they stabbed him, that this was a drug deal gone bad, that this was a wife's husband, someone that knows something. After the results of the newer investigations all seemed to point to the notion that Oog was murdered, his family made attempts to try and find out whoever was responsible. Francois de la Plaza would put up a reward of $100,000 for 
for anyone with information leading to the arrest of a suspect. Melissa Nix would make a request to the Office of Citizens' Complaints to look into the case, claiming that the SFPD and Inspector Antonio Casillas were neglectful in their duties on the death of Oog. She made a detailed list of 13 complaints about the case, including things such as neglected witnesses, a lack of fingerprint analysis and technical expertise, false information leaked to the press, and poor communication with the De La Plaza family. The Office of Citizens' Complaint would in fact make a public report that there was a failure on the law enforcement side on this case. Though there was no findings of misconduct, the report did state that the whole investigation was lacking, mainly due to lack of resources and cooperation between the medical examiner, crime lab, and the SFPD homicide detectives. As for now, the police continued to work the case while considering it a homicide. Though the death of Oog happened over a decade ago by now, there's not been a single suspect that has been named. There have been further complaints about the lack of information available to see just what the police have been doing or what they have found over the years, if anything at all. By declaring the case an open investigation, though, the San Francisco police are not required to divulge any details about what has been investigated. There's also no limit as to how long an open investigation case can last. There are other open investigations that have continued over several decades. For now, the SFPD still claim that Oog de la Paz's death is undetermined and is a suspicious death, but other than that, no new information has been revealed over the past decade. At this point, just about every independent source I could find on this case do all agree and come to the consensus that Oog de la Paz's death was one of homicide, not suicide. However, there are still some debates as to who murdered Oog, and how and why did they do it. Earlier I mentioned that this death has been considered a type of locked room mystery, and that Oog died or was killed while seemingly alone in his locked apartment. The fact that there was no signs that anyone had broken in or was ever in the apartment the night of his death is perhaps one of the main reasons why the police considered this a suicide. It just didn't seem possible for someone to have murdered Oog in his own apartment if all the doors and windows were locked. The general theory that solves this locked room mystery is that Oog wasn't actually attacked in his apartment at all, but rather just outside of it, and it was only after he had been stabbed that he ran back inside and locked himself in. While the majority of reports and statements made by those who have reviewed the case don't believe that the attacker ever gained entrance, there were apparently some objects in his apartment that were found moved in such a way that could suggest that someone else was in there. There's also his watch to consider, which was found on the ground beneath where his body was. Some have pointed the fact out to say it's possible that the last struggle occurred right there, and that during this struggle his watch was ripped off and then Oog fell down on top of it. The fact that there was only one set of bloody shoe prints found in the apartment, and no other forensic or DNA evidence found in the apartment beside the traces of unknown DNA found on the watch itself, is the main argument for those who say the killer never was inside the apartment at all. It has been put forth that it's possible that the killer either just got lucky or that they knew what they were doing, and that they were able to follow Oog into his apartment to make sure he died, but all the while avoiding getting any blood on them or leaving any DNA behind. As for the locked doors of the apartment, the attacker maybe could have found an extra set of keys in the apartment somewhere, or could have even had their own copies if it was someone who knew Oog personally. It's going on 12 years now since Oog de la Plaza died. 
Since then, there have been much debate, controversy, and confusion revolving around his death. It is perhaps a case that was doomed from the start due to a lacking police investigation. Years later, the friends and family of Oog are still hopeful that one day they will find the full truth behind his death, and that whoever is responsible will be found and brought to justice. With the way the case seems to be in limbo, though, unfortunately at this point it may remain unsolvable until, and if, the individual who committed the crime one day confesses. For now, the death of Oog de la Plaza remains an unusual and frustrating mystery. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own thoughts or feedback about the bizarre death of Oog de la Plaza, please write into the show. You can reach us at our email at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow and get in touch with the podcast through our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If any listeners have suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to send those in as well. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care everybody.